Walla Walla, and it is cold. A little breeze. Oh, man. It's a little, uh, that carrot sure is crunchy. Oh, oh celery. It was celery. Mm-hmm. Carrots and celery. That's carrot. All right, you ready, Steve? I'm going to read it. Go ahead. All right. I'm listening. You don't have to listen, though, if you don't want to. Okay, I I don't mind if you tune me out. Growing up as a baby boomer in the suburbs of New York City, I was instilled with a deep Yankee skepticism. I didn't give much thought to the idea of a devil, let alone the strange idea of demonic possession. Reports of diabolic assaults and the paranormal, we all believed, were topics for the tabloids like aliens and Bigfoot, and Halloween was a time to make fun of all that nonsense about witches (coughs) and goblins and black magic and the evil eye. I remember a neighbor, or that is to say, I remember a neighbor's mother giggling over her son who was dressed in a black and red costume as a cute little demon. My generation was educated during a historic period of settled faith and rationalism. As part of a middle-class United States, I and others of my generation took for granted our time and our country's specialness. Our faith in our democracy, its material progress, the great achievements of modern science, and its overthrow of superstitious ways of thinking. I learned in school an American pride and patriotism and, I was later to reflect, an easy dismissal of old-world habits and folk beliefs. Later, when I pursued history and religious studies seriously as a classics major at Princeton University, I began to take more of an interest in such strange and unorthodox ideas. I was struck by how pervasive notions about evil spirits and an ongoing supernatural events had preoccupied the ancients and the medieval world, and how even educated people reported a lively belief in spirits and trance states of communication with gods and dead souls. Though I was beginning to entertain a nascent fascination with such ideas, I was more interested at the time in developing my growing interest in the human mind. I immersed myself in my studies in languages, literature, and philosophy, and had an early exposure to psychoanalytic ideas which I hoped to pursue in earnest. After graduating from college, I lived for a year in France where I taught in a high school and played on a local semi-pro basketball team. Our team did well, and as a big fish in a smaller pond than than in the U.S., I averaged about 30 points a game. I loved the rabid French hometown fans, who were always worth an extra 15 points against all visiting rivals. When I wasn't on the court, I behaved like every other unattached single male on an adventure in a foreign country. I drank excellent wine, ate delicious French food, and imbibed too much of the control made in nearby Angiers. Looks like somebody's pulling out. Uh-huh. No. Uh, looks like he's parking it. That was uh, anticlimactic. 
the worlds of the so-called paranormal and diabolism that had intrigued me back home were the furthest things from my thoughts. That is, until my brother John met a local witch. John had been living and playing on another team in a region known for its active interest in athletics. One day he told me he had been taking an elderly woman. One day he told me he had been talking to an elderly woman who claimed to be, in her words, a good witch. During her conversation, my brother mentioned that he had suffered from warts on his hands since he was a teenager. The witch told him she could cure him. Despite my skepticism and ribbing, my brother couldn't shake the idea. The woman recommended that she, what she called a kind of folk healing. She told, she told John to perform a midnight ritual on a bridge in the outskirts of town. He was to recite a short incantation and then throw three beans over his shoulder into the river. She stressed that he, quote, had to believe. When John woke up the next day, having followed her instructions, the warts were still on his hands. That afternoon, he went back to the woman who told him the ritual hadn't worked because he hadn't, quote, really believed, end quote. He promised to try again, this time in earnest. All right. There he goes. And away he goes. That's Pacific Power right there. When John woke up the next day... Oops, let me try that again. The next morning, my brother came to see me, his voice filled with excitement. His warts had disappeared. Like a typical younger brother, I told him he must be getting a bit soft in the head. I I dismissed it as a case of mind over matter, documenting in an admittedly superior manner cases of relief from minor maladies that had occurred through the power of suggestion. Well, I don't care, John said. Something all of a sudden worked after all these years of useless creams and freezings. Although I remained skeptical, the incident deepened my interest in various theories about traditional healing practices, and I became fascinated with psychosomatic medicine, the vagaries of our complex immune system, and the enormous power of our brains upon the state of our physiology. Because I was planning on going to medical school when I returned home, I filed away the incident in my mind. By that point, I had already read the historical theories advanced by Sigmund Freud and his peers, documenting the prevalence of what they then called the bodily effects of hysterical states of minds. Freud and other early analysts stressed that acknowledged emotions and impulses could directly lead to overt medical conditions. Sometimes as dramatic as paralysis. Later, these states were called conversion disorders. Mental conditions in which patients experience specific neurological symptoms without an organic cause or coherent physical explanation. 
As a medical resident at Yale, I later came to see excellent examples of these phenomena firsthand. For instance, I examined a hospitalized young woman suffering from a mysterious leg paralysis that had no plausible, plausible, plausible physical or anatomical explanation. During one examination, she admitted that her deepest wish was to, quote, kick real hard my son-of-a-bitch father, end quote. Freud was influenced by Jean-Martin Charcot, an animated and famous Parisian physician during the late 19th century. An avowed secularist, Charot, was hostile to religion, and Freud applied his own theory of hysteria to religious phenomena including demonic possession. Freud argued that, quote, the demonic possession of a 17th century artist was an example of mental pathology wrongly mistaken for a diabolic attack. As it turned out, I played a basketball game near the small town of Ladoon, which I learned was a site of the infamous 17th century case of supposed multiple possessions at a convent there. In the 1630s, Several Ursuline sisters claimed that demons were assaulting them. During their alleged possessions, the nuns screamed and gyrated in bizarre ways and supposedly spoke several foreign languages unknown to them. The case was a sensation and still remains controversial in France. At the time, some exorcisms were conducted in public and drew crowds of curious onlookers. Oddless Huxley detailed these events in his 1952 book, The Devils of Ladoon. A campy film adaptation called The Devils, starring Vanessa Redgrave, premiered in 1971. The movie's graphic violence and nudity caused a storm of protest at the time, though I doubt many viewers took the subject matter seriously. I certainly didn't. Huxley persuaded me that with all its confusion and sensationalism, the Ledun case was a likely example of mass hysteria. He concluded that the episode was politically tinged and the product of severe emotional disturbance of a few cloistered and sexually repressed Catholic sisters. What made the case even more intriguing to me, however, was the involvement of two famous priests... Urban Grandier, a wealthy and well-connected pastor of the town, and Jean-Joseph Serene, a Jesuit. Grandier, who was famous for his effrontery and wandering eye was accused by his political rivals of seducing the nuns and casting spells on them. They even produced as evidence a Latin document that was purported to be Grandier's pact with Satan. Under horrendous torture, Grandier maintained his innocence. His inquisitors burned him at the stake anyway. To atone for the nuns and Grandier's reported sacrileges, Serene invited a demon to attack him and later wrote a fascinating, detailed account of his alleged years-long ordeal with the demonic spirit. 
Whether Serene was actually possessed or simply mad remains a point of historical debate. The noted French neurologist Jean Lhermitte much later concluded that the supposed possessions represented psychological pathology. His 1956 book, True and False Possessions, undoubtedly influenced Huxley's view. However, one religious scholar pointed out that to draw the same simple conclusion as Lermite, one would need to discount a good deal of the contemporary records. Many reports claim to have credible evidence of the nuns spontaneously speaking foreign languages. One would also need to dismiss as inaccurate multiple descriptions in the extant sources of the nuns' wild and anatomically inexplicable gyrations and impossible uh, contortions. Years later, a local French professor asked me, have you ever known a bunch of nuns going berserk who just happened at the same time to be highly gymnastic? This scholarly man concluded that although the nuns were likely not all possessed, there probably had been some demonic demonic phenomena evident in the village. He speculated that perhaps the nuns suffered from lesser attacks of what is known as oppression or diabolic vexation. I put much of this interest on hold during my busy years of medical school and after an internship in internal medicine, my psychiatric residency training at Yale. During my medical training, I became well-versed in the many inexplicable twists and byways of the human psyche. Indeed, true scientific exploration opens up new doors, new questions, and new possibilities. This is especially so when it comes to the mysteries of consciousness and of the human mind and spirit. I concluded that there were other ways of knowing things that didn't depend on whether that knowledge could be quantified through a laboratory experiment or a rigid scientific test. I came to feel that the evidence for the strange psychic phenomena history repeatedly throws at us, especially the hard-to-explain but well-documented spiritual experiences in all cultures, also deserved rigorous scientific exploration. Aside from a few confidants, I rarely shared this interest with my colleagues, and I still don't, mostly unless I am asked about it. Looking back, I suppose I thought most of them simply indifferent to this subject. Others, I imagine, might even be critical of my fascination and look a bit askance upon a fellow psychiatrist early in his career who took this realm seriously. At the same time, I can now acknowledge that I have not really experienced, then or since, any overt hostility to my studies in this area. (coughs) Around the time that I graduated as a resident and postdoc fellow from the Yale Psychiatry, Psychiatry Program, a somewhat inaccessible literature about a modern possession was emerging within the mainstream. Various investigators, inspired by the commercial success of William Peter Blatty's 1971 novel, The Exorcist, and the movie that followed, were digging up previously unreleased facts about the events that inspired the fictionalized account. Uh, 
I was fascinated to learn the real-life details of this sensationalized story, and though I was already convinced that Blatty had borrowed features from various historical accounts of exorcisms, including the Ludoon case, I was particularly struck that the movie had primarily fictionalized an account of a putative action and present-day possession. Of a putative actual and present-day possession. Blatty's fictional story was said to have been modeled on the real-life possession of a young boy in Maryland, starting in 1949. Original sources pseudo... pseudonymously... uh, yeah, anonymously called the boy Roland Doe, but at the age... But in the age of investigative curiosity, the boy was later rechristened Robbie Mannheim. Raised Lutheran, Robbie was ministered to by his pastor, the Reverend Luther Miles Schultz. He had stints in hospitals, but doctors couldn't explain the case features and psychiatric treatment had no effect. Robbie remained possessed for a long time. As portrayed in the film, troubles began with the poltergeist-like phenomena, inexplicable noises and scratchings, a vibrating bed, objects flying around, a tipped-over chair. Multiple accounts claim that up to 48 people witnessed these strange happenings, including Reverend Schultz, who attested to such occurrences when Robbie stayed with him in his home for an extended observation. Robbie's condition eventually progressed to symptoms more typically associated with possession. Involuntary trance states vitriolic expressions of hatred towards religion, delivered in a diabolic-sounding voice, and other paranormal abilities, including speaking in Latin, a language unknown to the patient, At one point, according to witnesses, Robbie's room became frigid, a not unprecedented occurrence during exorcisms, I later learned. A variety of clergy performed multiple rituals of exorcism. First, according to Lutheran, then Episcopalian, and finally Catholic procedures. Several Jesuits in a St. Louis hospital eventually conducted the successful series of exorcisms years later. The priests related that a loud noise accompanied the actual moment of Robbie's deliverance. The Jesuits compared the sound to a thunderclap. After his successful exorcism, Robbie went on to marry, having children, and then led a successful life. Before Robbie's... Sorry, before his death in 2017... Blatty acknowledged that his fictional story was most prominently based on the Mannheim possession, but was also a composite. For instance, Blatty modeled the character of the priest psychiatrist in his book and screenplay, in part upon Father Surin, who had similarly offered himself to the demon as ransom for the original victim. At the same time, Blatty intended the two priests in his novel, Father Damien Caras and Father Lang- Lancaster Marin to represent two contrasting points of view. With his heavily lined face and white hair, Father Marin symbolized the old school Catholic Church and its belief in literal evil spirits. He doesn't waver from that belief even as he conducts the exorcism that will end his life. Father Caras, on the other hand, begins the story with the conviction 
that the young girl, Reagan McNeil, demonstrates signs of an unknown psychiatric disorder despite the evidence pointing to possession. Only after running every physical and psychological test possible does Father Karras change his mind, finally acknowledging that something inexplicable, something demonic, is going on. The personal transformation of Father Karras proved especially fascinating to me. I probably only later realized how seminal it turned out to be to my much later academic pursuits and direction. A trained psychiatrist who investigates the matter from an analytic and scientific point of view and then, and only then, comes to believe firmly in the reality of demonic possession. Like Father Karras, I have since walked in two worlds, the world of scientific psychiatric investigation and the world of exorcism, and I've spent much of my time over the years deepening my understanding of both, which to some seem incompatible, though in my opinion. They are not at all so. After my four years of residency, I took an academic position as an attending psychiatrist at Cornell New York Hospital, Winchester's long-term division. I was part of a team treating very troubled individuals in a specialized inpatient unit for patients diagnosed with severe borderline personality disorder. These patients are highly unstable and troubled and frequently have been abused. Working with such challenging patients was a stimulating experience right out of my residency. The treatment milieu, or program environment, had been established and guided by the clinical principle articulated by our hospital director, Dr. Otto Kernberg, one of the foremost psychoanalysts in the world. At Cornell, I also got involved in research helping develop more rigorous interview methods and assessment scales for evaluating degrees of traumatic experiences in the background of our patients. Our results, as one of several research groups publishing early findings confirming high levels of abuse in their case histories, were eventually published in a monograph in the Journal of Personality Disorders, of which I was lead author. Lead author. I found both the clinical atmosphere and the academic work in Winchester engrossing, but also time-consuming. Once again, I had to put out of my mind any interest in the possessions and other such topics in which I came to think of myself as, quote, religious phenomenology, which I still consider a side av- a vocation. Before I left New Haven, I gave some serious, if fleeting thought after my training to pursue formal graduate work at Yale in the academic study of the history of religion. After working at Cornell for a time, though, I began to think that I had had turned my back on that option, perhaps forever. I decided to enroll at the Columbia University Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research and entered the required training analysts, analysis, analysis with the prestigious Dr. Kernberg. I was soon asked to teach the course at Cornell Medical College on the life and work of Sigmund Freud. Slowly but surely, I was becoming known as someone skilled in psychopharmacology, and I was starting to think about applying for research grants. A conventional career as an academic psychiatrist 
was taking shape. But one morning in the early 1990s, an unexpected visitor, an elderly Catholic priest, knocked on my office door and asked whether I could help evaluate a woman. The priest told me he was one of the very few official exorcists in the United States.